evening. Welcome to our Bible study. Let's go right into John chapter 17. If you remember where we left off, we are looking at some chapters in John that give us a series of teachings that Christ gave. And I had stated, we don't really know, can't be sure if all these teachings were at the end of his ministry, but God, through inspiration, chose to put them in the Gospel of John towards the end, even though they might, and I think likely, have been things that Christ taught throughout his ministry, earlier in his ministry. And I had said that I believe uh, in that time, the, the method in which people wrote books was not necessarily the same in what we do today. The culture looked at things differently, and sometimes when writing what would be considered a historical document, it didn't always have to be in the order of events that took place. Sometimes it would be written in an order of importance. And I believe that God inspired John to write these teachings in an order of importance, placing them at the end of Christ's ministry to kind of leave us with a lasting impression of what Christ wanted, to, wanted us to know about truth, about him, and about discipleship, and, and how Christianity looks moving forward. So we're in John 17, verse 1, and these words spake Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest to me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus is making some pretty amazing statements here. Some statements that would make it pretty clear why the religious leaders were so adamant on, you know, silencing him. Look at the last part of that phrase in verse 5. Glorify me, essentially, as I had with you before the world was. There are some who said Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Now, although it might be true that Jesus never said the words, I am God, Jesus said in many ways, many times, essentially the same thing. And this is one of those times right here. Jesus is making the statement that I was with God before the world was, and I shared the glory of God before the world was. There's no way to get around the fact that Jesus is claiming to be equal to God. And that is what bothered the religious leaders. That is what bothered the Pharisees. So Jesus didn't just make that statement. I want to back up, though, now to, I think, a great statement that would really be a life motto for all of us in this room today. I don't think that we would dare claim the, 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 the final phrase that he gave, but I love what he says here in verse uh, 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. Jesus is not looking at the present day. Jesus didn't live in the temporary. Jesus had the opportunity, the ability, the foresight, the vision, that when he came to earth, he knew what eternity was. He came from eternal past in a temporary body to go back to eternal future. So Jesus has eternity in mind the entire time that he's on this earth. And every relationship Jesus has and every conversation that he holds and every action that he performs is all with the mindset of eternity. And this is eternal life, that they know you. This is what I want. I think that many of our questions that we have regarding the hardships of this life, the chaos of this world, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do people die young? Why do the righteous die young? Young and, you know, 60 years is young when we feel like it's a life cut short. Uh, 70 years is young when it's a life cut short. We've had grandparents that die, and we're like, why didn't they have longer, right? And they would have what, what most of the world would call a full life, and we still say, oh, they could have had more time. Our questions are answered when we recognize this truth. We are only living in a short span of a much larger eternity. And God's plan for our lives and God's plan for this world is not the 50, 70, 90, 100 plus years that we may have on this earth. That is not his plan. His plan is not to give the United States the best 100 years from 2001 to 2090 or, or beyond. That is not God's plan. God's plan is not to give you the best life. God's plan is not to give Meriden Hills Baptist Church the, the, the peak of their ministry right now. God's plan is eternity. And when you consider the thousands of years past and whatever amount of years that God has in front of us, the time that we have now is a drop in the bucket of God's plan. And then when you consider you are just one of billions of people in that eternal plan, it is not that God ignores us because God knows the hairs on our head. It is not that God doesn't care for us because he sees when the sparrow drops. How much more does he see us? God knows us and God cares for us. But God's plan is not our plan, we're told in the Old Testament. We don't know the mind of God. How can we? As much as we try to understand, to appreciate, to recognize, to embrace this idea that we are eternal beings, not eternal past, but our souls, our spirits are eternal. They will go to eternal heaven or eternal hell. We are not going to end. God has created us that once we were created, we will live eternally somewhere. And that is hard for us to grasp. But the closer we get to that truth, the easier it is to recognize that people die. People have been dying and people will die. But God's plan is eternity. And that people know him so that when we do die, and when we do pass from this temporary into the eternal, we can not just know him, but dwell with him. That is God's plan. God's plan is not to give you 30 more years in this life. That it was not why God created the world. God's plan was not to give every human being a perfectly healthy body for their whole life. Now, originally, when God created the world, that was the plan, right? But man messed that up. So God did not plan after the curse to change all that so we'll have perfectly healthy bodies and live forever. God's plan after the curse was that we could enjoy what he originally wanted us to have in paradise with him for eternity. That's God's plan. And as Christians... We have to get over the fact that this life isn't about us. That this life isn't about our church and our family and our friends. This life is about people knowing God. Christ saw that clearly because Christ is God, came from it, and was going back to it. But the closer we get to Christ, the closer we see what he saw. And the easier it is to accept the chaos of this world. But it doesn't end there. He says, The life eternal, this might, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Obviously, to know God the Father, we must know God the Son. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. 
I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I love that statement. I desperately want to be able to say that. If I have the opportunity to speak on my deathbed, if my death is not sudden, I want, not, I'm not saying I will say that, you know, in some bragging way, but I, I want to be able to say that. I want this to be something I can honestly state at the end of my life. I glorified God, and I completed the work he gave me to do. This life was not about me. This life was about the eternal God, his eternal glory, and people knowing him in eternity. And I did what I could to see that happen, and I completed the work. I have two heroes of the faith, obviously Christ being one of them, but aside from God himself, David in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. I love David because I see how flawed David is. God just gives us his flaws straight out. And, and I've said it many times, it is more than just David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. David had a lot of problems. David was not the strong leader that you might think that he was. He was a bold and courageous man, but the guy had a problem with nepotism. The guy let his friends and family literally get away with murder. David had issues, and yet David constantly repented of his sins, constantly came back to God, and God constantly forgave David. Now, forgiveness for David didn't always eliminate the consequences of his bad choices. Often, David had to live in the consequences of his bad choices to the end of his days. His sons murdering each other and, and causing chaos in the land, those are consequences David had to live with. But David never had to live with the consequence of God's rejection of him. David never had to live with the consequence of God separating from him. David always, always enjoyed a close relationship with God whenever he sought it, in spite of his humanity, in spite of his flaws. And I love the story of David because it just shows the mercy and grace of God. If God can love a man like David, God can love me. And then when I see Paul, I see what God can do with the man who was running the opposite way. Paul himself gives the story, right? We're in the book of Acts where I know that it's, it's written uh, by Luke, but I, I imagine in my head, you know, Luke heard it from Paul, obviously inspired by God and heard it from God himself too. But, but God's stating, Paul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you pushing against conviction? Why are you running from me? And then I see what God can do with the man who was running from God when the man chooses to run towards God. And these two guys, now there are plenty of other men and women in the Bible that inspire me, but when I see these two guys, honestly, I could just know those two stories aside from Christ, and that would be sufficient enough for me to still probably be doing many of the same things that I do. To know the story of Christ, David and Paul, I get a pretty clear picture of the kind of God that I serve and how he deals with people. Obviously, the other stories flesh out God's character, flesh out God's interpersonal relationships with us. But, but those two, paired with the story of the Gospels, paired with Christ, give us a really great picture of our God. And Christ says something very similar to what the Apostle Paul says later. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul states it as a memory of what Christ says. Because the Apostle Paul himself says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course. Right? I've run the race. At the end of his life, that is his statement. We're not told if Paul is saying it in reference to what Christ is saying. It's very likely that he might have been. He obviously, I, I, would, I would imagine he would have read uh, the Gospel of John by then. I imagine that he would have. I can't be certain of that. But what a great statement to make. 
That's a statement that I think every Christian should strive to make. But it's not one you're going to make at the end of your life if you're not striving to make it during your life. That's not the kind of statement that just happens, all right? It's not going to happen by luck or chance. That statement is made when, like the Apostle Paul says, when I fought, I didn't just beat the air. I had purpose. I had purpose in what I did, purpose in, in the things that I accomplished. And because of that purpose, I got to this point. Let's go to verse 6. Christ says, speaking to God, Christ is praying, of course, praying to God the Father. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gave me out of the world. I've shown it. I've illustrated it. I've taught it. That idea of manifest, by the way, is, is more than just telling. It is, it is a revealing. He's revealed God to people through how he lived. And that is what I want to do. So many Christians get caught up in the idea that if we just speak the truth, that is sufficient, and those who really want to hear it will hear it and get saved, and those who don't, well, that's their problem. It's not mine. My only job is to speak the truth. That is it. And that yet is not what Christ says, right? God says the greatest commandment is not to speak the truth. It is to love God, and the second is to love your neighbor. Now, if you love your neighbor, you will speak the truth in love, right? Love includes speaking the truth. But if all you do is speak truth and do not show love, then 1 Corinthians tells us what kind of person you are. You are annoying, a sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. And people don't listen to annoying people. And the reason they don't hear your truth is not because you speak lies, because you're annoying to them. You can blame them. Well, it's truth, you know, it's their fault for not listening. No, it's, no your, it's your fault for not presenting it in a way that the hearer wants to listen to him. Christ manifested the name of God. Christ revealed God to people in a way they had not seen, ever. Now, this world currently does not have the benefit of Christ in the flesh walking on this earth, manifesting, revealing the character and quality and name of God to them. They don't have that benefit but they do have you. They do have me. And we have the Holy Spirit. And are we manifesting the name of God in a way that attracts people to God or pushes them away from God? And then we, in our pride, are we blaming them for running from God because our manifestation of God does him an injustice? Living two lives hypocrites, unloving, unkind. That kind of manifestation isn't the world's problem. It's ours. Which is why God said, all the laws, all my expectations, everything I ask of you as a Christian is wrapped up when you love God and you love people. We're going to skip down now to verse 9. He says, I pray for them. Pray for them who? Uh, pray for those who sent me. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Christ is praying now for those who he had a close connection to on this earth. I do believe that God loves the world. The Bible tells us, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. I believe that God loves us unconditionally, before salvation, just as much as he does after salvation. I don't believe God's love for us changes in amount from salvation before or after. I do believe, personally, that God's love changes, you might say, in nature. That it changes in, in, in maybe how it's displayed, not the amount it's displayed. And I'll tell you, and I'll describe it in this way. 
I love my wife deeply. I cannot, at this point in my life, love my wife any more than I currently do. I, the, the longer I grow in my marriage with my wife, the more I love her. But right now, I love her as much as I can. I love my kids as much as I can. My kids ask me, you know, Dad, who's your favorite? And I say, your mother's my favorite. Like, you know, that's just how it is. And they say, well, other than Mom, who's your favorite? I say, well, there is no favorite in this family. I love your mother the most, and after that, you guys are all equal. I do love my kids deeply, as deeply as I can. And I love my wife as deeply as I can, but I do not love them the same way. And I believe that God loves his church in a different way that he loves the world. I believe that God loves his church as his family, whereas he loves the world as his creation. And then when his creation chooses to join his family, God loves them in a unique way. Not more, differently. God loves us differently. Now, you could disagree with me. I can't necessarily prove that statement through a, a, a verse that like, clearly lays out what I said. I can only state it philosophically from my understanding of Scripture as I see God dealing with the church and how he talks about the church versus the world. I do believe God loves the world, and I believe he loves them unconditionally, and I believe he loves them deeply. He sent his son, his only begotten son. That proves everything that I just said. But I believe he loves us differently. And what a comfort to know that God loves us in that unique way as his family. And here he is, Christ, praying for his family. Verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Christ is coming to the end of his ministry, and he knows that his time is short. And as he's praying to God, he's not telling God things that God doesn't already know. Christ is God, praying to God the Father about the plan they've had from the beginning of time. <laughs> What's the point, Christ? Why bother? Why bother repeating verbally what God the Father already knows? Because relationships aren't always about giving new information. Sometimes relationships are just about connection. If you only talk to people to gain new information, they'll probably want to stop talking to you. They'll run out of things to say that will wow you. They'll run out of things to say that will intrigue you. And if they get the impression that you only want to talk to them to learn new things, they're going to like, you know what? I'm not interested in that kind of relationship. Sometimes the best relationships aren't looking to learn new things. They're looking to have a deeper connection. Christ, the Son, and God, the Father, already have a deep connection. And Christ is showing us right here how that kind of connection is maintained. It's maintained through things like conversation. Conversation about things both of you already know and both of you already agree on. But talking is still a big part of how interpersonal relationships find success. Now, there are times where you do need to say things for someone to learn something new. That does happen. But Christ here is showing us that prayer doesn't always have to be God, did you know this about me? Because that would never happen, right? God knows everything about you, always. Just accept the fact that when you pray to God, it's not to tell God things he does not know. It's to go grow deeper with God in your relationship because that's how relationships work. Connections are made through conversations. Conversations and shared experiences. If you are struggling with a disconnect, spouse, a child, a 
apparent. You are drifting apart. The solution is actually very easy. Conversations, pleasant conversations, and shared experiences that do not result in anxiety. They can result in joy. They can result in happiness. They can just be even boring. As long as they don't result in anxiety or anger or trauma, shared experiences, even boring ones. Going to Walmart with your spouse doesn't have to be exciting. The fact that the two of you went together, a shared experience, can deepen your relationship with the person you love. Now, I do believe that the exciting ones and the ones that bring you know, new uh, memories and create new nostalgic uh, traditions, those can really bind you together, but you can't always create those. If you're looking to always create those, you're going to wear yourself out. So accept those when they come. Take advantage of even the everyday, mundane, boring experiences. When I was young, many families ate meals together. And many families were a lot closer together than they were today. Now it seems that many families do not eat meals together. Many families are not together very often at all. And we are shocked and wonder why so many families are disconnected. Because they don't have shared experiences. And their conversations aren't with each other. They're not really with anyone. They're with social media, people you never met before, people you'll never meet before. They are comments you're hoping strangers will like enough so that you find some kind of self-gratification because 200 people like my comment because, you know, 30 people said something in response to it. And you're looking for self-gratification from people that you don't even have a connection with while missing out on the connections with people living in your own house. Deep connections are made through conversations and shared experiences that do not end in chaos or trauma or anger or sadness. Christ is showing us that here. Praying for the people that he loves as a family. First, uh, let's move on now to verse 14. I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Christ, let's, let's kind of go backwards. I'm not of the world, the world hates me. They're not of the world, the world hates them. But what did I give them to get through this? The word. Now, on top of that, what else is Christ going to give us to get through this? The Spirit. The Spirit and the Word are all we need to overcome the hatred of the world. The hatred of the world may be felt deeper in your life than mine. We don't all have the same experiences of how the world treats us. We have different jobs. We're on different people. Our families feel differently about God, and our circles feel differently about God. So you might experience a lighter or heavier hatred of the world on your life than I do. Most of my circle are people who are in full-time ministry. <laughs> so I don't really have a whole lot of the hatred of the world in my life. But I'll tell you this. No matter what amount that comes to, his word and his spirit are enough to get you through. And if you are drowning under the hatred of the world, if it is causing you deep depression and discouragement, and you are second-guessing your own walk with Christ and wondering if it's worth it, I can tell you one of two things is missing in your life. A love for God's Word or a connection with God's Spirit. Possibly both of those things are missing in your life. Because if you had both of them, you're prepped, you're ready, you're equipped to take whatever the world throws your way. You don't believe that. Maybe it's time you start reading some biographies of men and women, even in the last 500 years, 
who have taken on massive amounts of hatred, been martyred, been killed, and all they had was the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and that was enough for them. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Okay. I love, you know, when we read the Gospels, it's so easy to read through these so fast that you're getting the overall picture. Okay, Christ is speaking, Christ is teaching, Christ is dying, Christ is raising again. You know, this is great, uh, doing miracles. You miss a lot of the great truths that are inserted into, you might say, the crevices of these verses. And here's an example of it right here. So Christ says, they're not of the world. Well, I kind of already talked about that, right? We're eternal beings. Once, God, once we're created, we're not eternal past. We, we did not exist before creation, before God created us. But once we're created, God created us to be eternal future. So we're not of this world. We have a home somewhere else. All right, that's not really the intense truth. That one is pretty evident in other passages of scriptures. But look at verse 17. You know the word sanctification. You've heard the word sanctification. I'm looking in this room. Everyone in this room has been saved long enough, been in church long enough. That's not a new word for you. Those online, it might be. Maybe the word sanctification is something that is odd to you. The word sanctification does seem like an odd word because it's not really used in the English language, although the Bible uses it, references it often. And do you know what it is? And do you know how it's accomplished? God often defines these words if we're just willing to pay attention to them. And that definition is right here. If you've ever wondered, how does the sanctification process work? Right here is the answer. People think, well, sanctification, well, let me first define what it is. Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Christ. That's what the word sanctification means. We become more like Christ. Now, every one of us will be sanctified in our entirety when we die and we're given new bodies and we dwell with Christ forever in heaven. We will come to our, the culmination of our sanctification. We will, every believer, every Christian is promised, is guaranteed, is, is offered that hope in Christ that we are predestined to be formed to the image of Christ, we're told in Romans chapter 8. Predestined, meaning once you get saved, your destiny is locked in. It will not change. The moment of salvation guarantees that at some point in the future, you will look like Christ. Now, if you don't look much like Christ on this side of heaven, you will look like Christ in heaven. Sanctification will be complete. Now, the goal of God and the goal of the believer would be that we would start getting close to that point while on this earth. Why? So we can manifest the name of Christ to others so they can want what we've got, Christ. The goal of sanctification should not be selfish. It should not be so I look better. No, no, it's so that God looks better. Because the better God looks, the more people want to be in the arms of God. Sanctification isn't just for you. Sanctification is really for everyone who knows you, everyone who loves you, everyone you love. I personally believe that is the purpose of sanctification. God's glory for the benefit of everyone else, not you. There's a lot of Christians that God is working to sanctify them, but boy, they are pushing against it. They are fighting against it. They are kicking against it. And they don't look much like Christ. And the way in which they manifest God 
brings shame to him, brings anger and bitterness to the world. Because they, they say you claim one thing and live another. So sanctification is the process by which we look more like Christ. And how does that process work? Right here, through the word of truth. God will sanctify us through truth. How does God help us look more like Christ? By giving us truth and then helping us understand that knowing truth is not enough. Don't be a hearer only because hearers are deceived. Be a doer. If all you do is hear the word and you're not a doer, you're deceiving your own self, we're told. Sanctification is accomplished when we hear the word and act on what we hear. Apply, implement the truth of God's word. The more you do that, the more you look like Christ. It's as simple as that. Now, I say simple. It's as simple in its definition. The hardship is the constant, selfless, humble acts of throwing out those things that don't look like Christ. When they are revealed through truth, when you recognize them, when God says, this is not what it should look like, this is not how you should look, when God constantly does that, and you have to constantly humble yourself and say, God is right, I am wrong, and eliminate it from your life, that's the hard part. But understanding what it is, that's the easy part. Christ says, sanctify them. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have I also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. That they also might be sanctified through the truth. Christ is saying, you know, I'm going to come to that point where I'm going to die, and I'll be in heaven, and I'll be in that perfect state again of, you know, out of the, out of the human flesh. Christ is already perfect now, but he's a perfect God within the, the cursed flesh. Christ said, I'm going to sanctify myself. I'm going to exit this cursed flesh and be perfect in not just as God, but I will, I will, I will exit from this cursed flesh and be a perfect body again. I'm going to do that for their sakes. Right? Because in that process, what does he do? He conquers death in that process. But then he says, as you sent me, verse 19, uh, 18, God, the Father, as you sent me, I will send them. The purpose of Christ was transferred to his followers. If you want to know what is your purpose in this life, look at Christ. Your purpose in this life is to live as he lived, to love as he loved, to serve as he served. The more you know about Christ, the clearer your own purpose becomes the better idea you have of why you're on this earth and how it should look. Know Christ. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Christ is now praying for the future church, for us. And he's saying, I don't just pray for those that you've given me now, I pray for those that you'll give me then. Christ had you on his mind in those final hours. You were on his heart. I was on his heart. Let's move down to verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare that the love wherewith thou hast loved me 
may be in them and I in them. Christ's final request in this prayer was, first of all, at the verse 24, he says, let them be near me when I come to the end. They do abandon Christ, do they not? But what's great is Christ isn't praying, let them be near me when I die. What is Christ praying? Let them be near me when I'm glorified. And when Christ raises again and is glorified, he is with those he loves. For the next 40 days, he's with them. God the Father answered that prayer. And in his glorified state, he was allowed to be near those who loved him, to inspire them. Why? Inspire them for what? That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. The final part of his prayer. I ask that my love will be in my people. Christian, if you think that you are impressing God with the amount of giving, the amount of serving, the amount of faithfulness and commitment that you have towards his church or his kingdom, you are mistaken. We're going to start our next series, I'm hoping, in October on the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we are uh, able to kind of get a sneak preview into what some of the churches were dealing with in that first century. And these churches were by far perfect. I've, I've had people tell me before, you know, Russ, I just wish that 21st century churches could be like the first century churches, back to the peer churches and back to what they were back then. I'm thinking, have you not read the epistles? Have you not read the book of Revelation? These churches were not like the epitome of everything we should want to be. These churches had some major struggles. I mean, let's not even talk about the Corinthian church. You know, the, the church of Revelation had major issues. There was some craziness going on. We get this idea that, that in the first 100, 200 years that all the churches were pure and all the Christians were loving all the time. That was not the case. We get a little preview into what those churches were dealing with. And there was a church who was very active in their community and, and it seemed was a, a humble servant of God. But God said, you lost your first love. You used to love me, you don't anymore. Now you just go through things out of obligation. You're just going through the motions. The love you once had for me, the passion, the connection. We don't have shared experiences. You don't talk to me anymore. You don't listen to me. We don't do things together. You're just doing things on your own for me, not with me. Do things with me. Stop doing things for me. Listen to me. Don't just speak to me. God says you lost your first love. And if you don't reconnect with me through love, we'll see in that book that God warns them, I'll close your church down. You think you're impressing God with all of your actions. God is not impressed with our actions. You want to impress upon the heart of God pleasure? Do so through love. Connection. The Apostle Paul, I believe, recognized that amazing truth. And I see the graciousness in which he wrote the letters to the churches and constantly brought them back to that point. It's not about works. It's not about works. It's not about works, guys. It's about relationships. It's about love. The Apostle Paul was surrounded by people who came from a variety of religious backgrounds, but whether it was Jewish background or others, these religious backgrounds were always pointing at works. And the Apostle Paul was saying, no, this does not impress God. 
We need to be connected with him through love. Well, let's move now to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to see the, the final days of Christ's life now in the uh, last three or four Bible studies before we move on to Revelation. We're going to move fairly quick through uh, the next parts of our Bible study. Let's go to Mark chapter 14 and in verse 26. So we had already discussed Christ's final moments in the upper room uh, before going into these lessons that we were taught through the book of John. That's what we looked at, and, and Judas left the room, and uh, Satan came upon him, and, and uh, Christ was having conversations with them in the upper room. So now here we are, Mark 14, verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. All right, so they're exiting that house where Christ was having that final supper with them. This is the last meal Christ was going to eat with them before he died. He will eat with them again after his resurrection, but not until then. So they go to the Mount of Olives. And uh, let's go now to verse 27. All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said unto him, although all that shall be offended, yet will not I. Of course, this is a famous text been preached on probably more often than many other texts, especially in the Gospels. And I think the truth is pretty evident. You know, don't boast of things. Uh, be careful what you boast about. You know, you're going to find yourself in a, doing the very opposite thing you boasted about. But I think the bigger truth is uh, Christ gives Peter a chance to actually fulfill this boast. Although Christ knows he will not, and Christ prophesies he will not, Christ takes Peter, only one of a few, into that uh, special place in the garden where he prayed to give Peter a chance to pray and prepare himself for what was to come. Peter chooses to not pray, and instead, what does he do? Sleep. He can't blame the guy. He's been up all day. He had a meal. Now it's late at night. I mean, we're talking, you know, well deep into the night. We're not talking 9 or 10. We're talking, you know, past midnight. Peter's tired. I can't say I blame him. But God has warned them. Christ warned them. There's a lot going to happen tonight. Let's prepare for this. If you knew what was coming, would you stay up to prepare? You probably would. The problem was Peter didn't believe or didn't understand what Christ said was coming. He says right here, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. It wasn't like Christ said, Well, in the next ten years, something crazy is going to happen. Let's stay up all night to pray and prepare for what might happen five years from now. You're going to be like, You know what? I'll pray tomorrow. I'm going to go to sleep tonight. But when Christ actually says, tonight it's going to happen, tonight it's going to go down, and then gives them a chance to prepare, I think we see the humanity in Peter. We see the humanity in all the apostles when they choose instead to sleep. We don't know when Christ is going to return. We do know he is going to return. And Christ told us to live like his return could be at any time. He told us to consider the fact that a thief does not warn when they come into your house. And Christ says, think of me in that way. Not that I'm coming to steal, but like a thief, you won't get a warning. And that does not mean we stay up all night every day praying. But it does mean we recognize we are very possibly and should consider the fact that we're close to the end. Now, whether that's true or not doesn't really matter, does it? Whether we live like it's true, that's what matters. Do not fall into the trap of these apostles. 
when Christ warns us, the end is here, the end is here, the end is here, and we say, oh, I've got some time. I'll take it easy. I'll serve God later. I'll serve God when I retire. I'll serve God when my kids get out of the house. Oh, now I'll serve God when the grandkids get out of the house. Oh, now I'll serve God like, okay, what, do you, what time you got left now? Stop waiting and get to busy. Get to work. Peter made the mistake, and of course the prophecy Christ gave was fulfilled. Let's go down now to verse 33. You take with them Peter, James, and John. And where do they go? They go into a deeper part of the garden, and they begin to, well, Christ begins to pray. Uh, and saith, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, and unto death tarry he, ye here, and watch. So Jesus Christ is explaining to them, I'm in, a, I'm in a really difficult place. I'm hurting. I'm exceedingly sorrowful. Christ is laying out his emotions for his apostles. He's opening up his heart to them. Now, have you ever gone deep with someone, emotionally deep, and laid out on the table how you felt only for them to say, ah, it's no big deal. Only for them to act like it's no big deal. When that happens, what is your tendency? You don't do that again, do you? You are worse off than if you had not told them anything. Here's Christ talking to what should be his three best friends. One of them, John. John himself gives himself the title, the one whom Christ loved. And John hears Christ open up his heart and says, I'd rather sleep. Don't lose the opportunities that people give you or they'll stop giving them to you. Especially opportunities to connect to them on a heart level that only comes so often and they won't keep giving you if you reject that opportunity. When someone is hurting, broken, desperate, they don't need you to fix their problems. You probably aren't able to do so. If their problem was fixable, they wouldn't be desperate. And they would just say, can you help me with this? When they're coming to you in desperation and just saying, I'm broken and I'm hurt, they don't think you can fix their problem. They don't want you to fix their problem. Don't try to fix their problem. They want you to be present, not just in body, in an emotional connection. You sleeping in the same room with them while they're crying isn't helping them. You holding them helps them. We don't need our friends to fix our problems, do we? Not always, sometimes, often not. We don't need our spouses to fix our problems. Sometimes we do, most of the time we don't. We just need people in our life who won't abandon us, who won't ignore us, who won't pretend that our problems are minor and we should just get over it. That's what we need. That's what Christ wanted. And if anyone should have gotten what they wanted, it should have been Christ. If anyone deserved at the hardest moment in their life to be loved and embraced, it was Christ. And yet we find Christ emotionally alone. Not spiritually. God the Father is with him. But emotionally with his disciples, he's alone. These guys have dozed off. The ones that should have been there, nearby praying for him, 
coming over and hugging him, letting, as Christ is crying. Christ is crying. Maybe on the shoulders of John and Peter. But no, that would not be the case for Christ. It was not necessary, according to the prophecies, that Christ would go to the cross alone in this way in the sense of that the apostles would sleep. It, it was not prophesied that all those with him would be asleep. It was prophesied they would abandon him, but the, the, the apostles could have stayed awake, and prophecy still would have been fulfilled in every element. Nothing would have changed, either prophetically or with salvation, if the apostles had stayed awake and embraced Christ. What would have been different is Christ would have been comforted with his friends. Verse 35, he went forward a little, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. He cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith, Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest ye enter in temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. He wakes them up. It's only been an hour, guys. Verse 39, again he went, prayed, spake the same words, and when he returned, he found them asleep again. 41, you notice what he doesn't do this time? Wake them up. He walks in the garden with them. He says, watch and pray. He goes off for about an hour, comes back in their sleep, wakes them up, goes off and prays again. Comes back, they're asleep again. Verse 41, he cometh unto the third time, and saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. He does not give them a second opportunity to emotionally connect with them. Why? Because they rejected the first. That's not cruel of God. It was cruel of them. When God opens up his heart to you, you hear a service, you worship in a worship service or there's a message or a song or a passage of scripture that you just feel the heart of God opening up to you. When you turn away from it and reject that emotional offer from God, it's not cruel of God to not offer it to you again. I am greatly concerned for the dead worship that we find in so many churches in what is supposedly the 21st century church of God. <laughs> I'm greatly concerned for the dead worship. Worship is the time where we emotionally connect with God. That's where it happens right there. And God, I believe, does at that time open up his heart, but so many Christians are not interested. So many Christians would rather be on their phones when the songs are sung. So many Christians would rather take the opportunity to send a text to a business associate or to a family member or to uh, start the oven remotely or to start ordering their Uber Eats, whatever it might be. They're doing other things. So many Christians might, would rather just sit there and, you know, decompress and essentially just try to eliminate all the chaos of their mind from the earlier of the day, let alone the earlier of the week. What they do not do is respond to the heart of God. And then they wonder when they walk into church the next Sunday, man, sure is dead worship in here. Like, what's going on in here? Yeah, God's not going to keep offering to you what you keep rejecting. 
I do believe he can turn around. I've seen it turn around. I've seen it turn around in this church. I'm not saying recently. This church, I think, for some years now has been worshiping passionately. But that was not always the case. Years ago, this church would have, would have been a lot closer to what I would call dead worship than passionate worship. Years ago, this church, Meriden Hills, was full of, full of people who sang without passion, sang without love, if they sang at all. There was no emotional connection with God. It was just, let's sing to get through the songs because that's what we do so we can hear the preaching because that's why we're here. But that is no longer the case for Meriden Hills. Now I see a church of people who experience an emotional connection with God when they come. And you know what? When I was first here, the dead worship part of the service lasted about 20, 25 minutes. And now the passionate worship of Meriden Hills goes on till 11.40, sometimes 11.45 occasionally. I often am not starting my message till about 11.45 or later. Why? Because emotional connection with God is extremely important for you and for him. Don't go to church just to hear truth. Go to church to experience God, experience his heart, experience his love, and you do that through worship, which is why God commands us to worship. God wants that to be in our life. It is not less than the truth. It is not more than the truth. It is one of the truths. <laughs> that God wants us to have. Sincere, passionate worship. The apostles rejected the first chance. God didn't give them a second. And if you find yourself in a place where people around you seem to be worshiping, but you are not, could it be that you have rejected that opportunity before? Fortunately for you, God is a God of second chances. And if you open up your heart to God, I believe God will give you another chance. But it may be you have to go to him this time. And you might have to go to him and say, God, I'm sorry for rejecting those opportunities. I'm sorry for saying no. I'm coming to you asking. Because God may not come to you again. You might need to go to him this time. That's not cruel of God. It was cruel of you to say no when he came to you before. Next time we're together... We'll talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll talk about the trial of Christ and the sham of a trial that it was. We'll probably get into the crucifixion of Christ. And then, of course, after that, we'll talk about his resurrection and the time that he spent with his apostles and disciples before ascending into heaven after those 40 days. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hope you have a great evening, and we'll see you next Wednesday.